Good morning. As Randy pointed out, um, the way it's going to work is the passage that we'll be looking at that morning, we'll announce that ahead of time. So if you want to read the passage before coming that Sunday morning, you can familiarize yourself with the passage. don't need to, but it will be read that morning. And then from the passage, there's questions that will begin the process of looking at the passage. So it won't be something you'll hear about the message. It'll be you'll look at the passage and then having thought about the passage and discussed it with others and, and getting to know others. There'll be a few icebreaker questions. I think the first week then it's going to be an introduction to First Peter, which the First Peter is about staying the course, and so there's going to be ten weeks on that. And and it's about people who have been dislocated, who have gone from one part to a comfortable neighborhood to others. So in the beginning, one of the questions will be, have you moved around a lot? And so in terms of opening up, you get a chance to know something about some other people. And then you'll go more specifically into the passage. What does God say to people who have been moved around by struggles and persecution? And so as you talk about, discuss that with one another, you'll get to know the passage that we'll be looking at. You'll also get to know some other people. So when you come, uh, you'll start to equate people with experiences. Oh, yeah, I remember. And then names and knowing one another. So that's what it will foster. And we'll let you know the, the passage a week in advance, and we'll just have on a regular basis. Um, this week, we're looking at uh, this, and next week, we'll close up the section on supernatural. Uh, what we've talked about, miracles of supernatural intrusions, into the natural world, they tell us things about Jesus and his kingdom. With that in mind, look what it says. We continue looking at Jesus' experience showing up to Peter and the disciples when they moved from Jerusalem back home, and Jesus showed up by the banks of the sea. Um, when they had finished breakfast, says in John 21:15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you, and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. 
So look, the day-long feast is over. Jesus appeared to them in the beginning and the end of the Passover celebration. He said, I want you to go north into Galilee and wait there, and I'm going to meet with you on a mountain. And at this stage, this is prior to meeting with them on the mountain, he meets them by the Sea of Galilee. While waiting for further instructions, Peter temporarily returns to his old occupation and bides his time, goes fishing, goes with six others. They get blanked. Jesus shows up on the shore. He said, hey, you might try to throw the net out on the right side of the boat. They do that, 150 fish, and the net's not breaking. Then John says, it's the Lord, it's Jesus. And so then Peter dives into the water and starts to make his way towards shore. They tow the boat in. And um, Jesus then says, tell you what, sit down, let's have some breakfast. They had a couple meals a day. They had a meal prior to the work day and that evening. So they had some fish and loaves, fish and bread. And as the text indicates, when they had finished breakfast, all of them are still around. There are seven of them, seven of them. Jesus says to Simon Peter, Again, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And then he ends up rephrasing that question several times as we looked at. The fact that there are two different words for love, there are actually four Greek words for love. One is agape and phileo and storge and eros. Eros is romantic love, erotic. That's where we get the word erotic from. Storge is familial love. Then phileo is like friendship. It's Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and that's phileo. Agape is divine love, and so the sense is God might, Jesus might be, he uses two different words to Peter. He ends up, agape love is seen to be divine love, and phileo love is more human love. So Jesus asked Peter if he agapes him. Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I, and then Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter says, I phileo you. Jesus says, do you phileo me? And Peter goes, you know everything. You know, you know that I phileo you. And, and I imagine Peter is thinking about, he has, and as we'll look at, he's made statements about his ability to stand with Jesus. And he wasn't able to follow through on his commitment to Jesus. And so as these questions penetrate, Peter is left to think about the difference between what he is saying and what he had been showing. And for all of us, there is a gap there, isn't it, in terms of the expression of devotion and love. What we say and what we do don't always match up. And Peter feels the tension between those two. He ends up deferring to Jesus, you know my heart, you know how I feel. Uh, so he might be using two different words, but we really don't know that particularly because agape love is, again, seen to be divine love, but that's applied to people, though, too. For instance, um, it says this is the judgment in John 3. Light has come into the world because people love the darkness rather than the light. The love of the darkness is they agape the darkness. So, um it says as well, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him 
for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved agape, the glory that comes from men. So it's not a hard and fast thing. Sometimes this love is applied to people. Sometimes people love is applied to God. The Father loves the Son. It says the Father phileos the Son. Uh, in that day, Jesus said, you will ask in my name. I don't say that I will ask the Father. The Father himself loves you. He follows you. So what I'm saying, there might be something there, but it's not necessarily so. There's using some different, some different words for love, some different words for sheep, some different words for no. It's, it's, but there is something. Peter is saddened because Jesus asks him the same question a third time. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And even if there's not, and there might be some significance, but I don't think that's the main thing here. It's just a repetition of the question, and Peter has to think about what he's saying and also think about what Jesus has seen in his ability to follow through. Um, Jesus makes clear what prompts this question in the first place. The reason why Jesus is asking him three times is not about Peter's triple denial. It's not pointing to the past. And neither is Jesus um, trying to embarrass Peter before the other disciples. It's, it becomes clear what Jesus is thinking of and what Jesus says to him. Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old... You will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. What Jesus is thinking of is the future. We've looked at the difference between discipline and punishment. This is an indication of discipline. Discipline is a painful process. It can be a struggle, painful, unpleasant to be disciplined, but we need to be clear that when we are in difficult circumstances, there is a difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment focuses on past incorrect behavior, but discipline focuses on future correct behavior. And this is what Jesus is thinking about. He knows Peter's future. And he asks him, because these questions will be part of the process of allowing Peter to do in the future what he has been unable to do in the past. He denied Jesus before a servant girl, but by the time Jesus is done with him, what we know is that Peter is crucified upside down in Rome at the end of Nero's reign sometime in the mid-60s. And at that time, there's no denial. And what Jesus is able to do is take this young, undeveloped faith and develop it to the place where it is what it was not in the beginning. That is discipline. It's the ability of Jesus to come alongside of us, to give an image of what he is asking, and then remain with us, work in us, in order to bring about the things that he will want from us. Uh, that's, what, that's the difference between discipline and punishment. Discipline, again, focuses on the future, on what is encouraged, the behavior that he's looking to enable us to do. Punishment looks in the past. Motive is different. The motive of punishment is wrath or anger, retribution. 
The motive of discipline is love. It's to bring somebody to a place where they'll be able to do the thing that's asked of them. The expression, you will stretch out your hands, what they would do when they crucified somebody is they would take the horizontal pole and they would strap the arms to it and then you'd have to carry that. You'd stretch your arm and you'd carry this this lumber to the place of um, execution. And he says, Peter, here's the deal. You're going to stretch out your hands. And, and somebody's going to bring you to a place where you don't want to go. He's talking about Peter's eventual martyrdom by crucifixion. And by the time John wrote this, John probably writes his gospel toward the end of the first century. Uh, Peter has already fulfilled Jesus' prediction. And again, he didn't want to be crucified, legend tells us, the way Jesus was. So he said, when he had carried this thing, he says, don't put me right side up, put me upside down. It might not be significant that the two words for love are used again, but what is significant is that as Jesus commissions Peter for service, and this is the period between when he's risen and he will go back to the Father, he commissions his disciples and says, you're going to have to take over. And the thing that he asks of Peter is about Peter's love for him. That's the number one thing. Love, the love that is described here is a love of total attachment and exclusive service. That's what it means, and that's what Jesus asks of Peter. It's a love that is about a love of total attachment. Peter, I want you to be focused on what I want you to do. And exclusive service, that's what this love means. And as we'll see, when Peter, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? He's not saying, do you have warm feelings for me? He's not saying, do you cry when you sing songs about me? Does your heart get all warm and fluttery? That can express love, but that's not exactly what Jesus is asking. Because when he says, is if you love me, you'll express it by feeding my lambs, tending my sheep, caring for those I care for. This is very practical. He's not telling Peter, I want you to feel anything for them. He's saying, I want you to serve them as I have served them. Jesus expressed his love by wrapping a towel and washing feet. Uh, Did he want to do that? Maybe and maybe not. But what Jesus is going to express to Peter, here's the deal, Peter. There's some things that you can do because you want to. And in the newness of faith, that might have been the way things worked out. But what he's telling Peter, here's the deal. You're going to get to a place where I'm going to ask you to go to a place where you cannot want to go. And therefore, if your faith is limited to doing what you feel like doing, you're not going to be able to follow through when faith is young. God allows us to want to do what he wants us to do. But as faith develops and years go, he ends up teaching us slowly, gradually, how to follow not only when we want to, but when we don't. 
And that's the thing that separates the kind of faith that Peter has at this time with the kind of faith he will have at the end of us. Because here's the deal. Peter will go to his death, but he doesn't want to. Who in the world can want to be crucified? Sometimes then you say, well, you know, but it's almost helpful. Sometimes we feel like if I don't want to do something, then there's something wrong. No. Doing something, even when we don't want to do it, that's okay. That's what he's telling Peter. It's really the kind of faith that he's going to develop in him. The one who loves Jesus will serve those Jesus serves. And again, this is not primarily emotional. In the Bible, love is more, it's more verb than noun. Love is not something you fall into and fall out of. Love is a verb. It's something you do. Love is practical. Love your neighbor as yourself. What do you do when you love yourself? How do you express love for yourself? You don't kiss your reflection in the mirror. Maybe. (laughs) You take care of yourself. You feed yourself. You clothe yourself. When you're sick, you try to get yourself to a place where you can be cared for. Your love for, our love for ourselves is very practical. That's what the biblical idea of love is. When you love somebody, you provide for them. You do what it is that they need. That's why you can love enemies. You can't feel warm about an enemy. If love means have feelings for an enemy, you can't do it. And so if that's what it means to fulfill the commandment to love, then a lot of us are out of work, out of luck. We can't love people that we don't That's interesting, isn't it? You really can love somebody you don't like, can't you? Would you agree? If that's the definition, you can love somebody you don't like. You can give them what they need. You can meet needs. You can provide for them what's important for them to have, even though you don't like them. Hmm. Um. Early on, I think, faith can be fueled by feelings. Later on, apparently... It isn't. I think Jesus might be getting that. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That's the question. And we don't know exactly what that means. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than you love these guys that you're with? Or Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these guys love me? Or Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? We don't know what the these are. Did he point to the boats? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than your occupation? Do you love me more than fishing? I think he might be, and I don't know, he might be pointing to the fish and the loaves. Because what ended up happening when Jesus fed 5,000? They, uh, he did that, and then Jesus took off in the boat, and then they, they ran, and it's really funny, they ran to the place where he got off, and <laughs> when did you get here? And he knows exactly, they knew exactly when they got here, because they chased him. And when Jesus said, you come to me, Because you ate and were filled, that's why you're here. You are here because you love fish and bread. And is Jesus then maybe pointing out, Peter, do you love me more than you love these? Is your connection to me because I give you things that increase your life? Um, I tell you, Peter, there's going to come a time where you're going to follow me and you're going to give up your life for me. And if you just love me because of what you get from me, 
because I feed your stomach, I give you what you need. Again, this is part of it. Then that takes us someplace, and at the beginning of, yeah, that takes us, but eventually, what he's saying to Peter, you're going to have to learn something different. Um, following Jesus would mean enduring something that Peter didn't and could not want. Nobody wants to die. And some people might be tired enough to give themselves to death. But at that point, we cannot want to carry our cross. Not possible, I don't think. There is within us a self-preservation instinct that he puts in us that's very strong. Um, there is a process of discipline. And again, as Peter is in this place where he's appearing, Jesus appears to him after the events of probably within the last month is when everything came apart in Jerusalem. Jesus died and was raised again. And in the last week, when we look at the painful process of discipline, here's what Peter said to Jesus. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Interesting, isn't it? Not if you, but when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew what was going to happen and how it was going to turn out. Um, he said, Peter said to him, Lord, <laughs> I am ready to go both to prison and to death. That's right. That's right. All the rest of you guys listen to this. I'm stepping up first. I, I'm the man. I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And uh, Jesus said, hmm, hmm. He looked at him. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. What's Peter's problem here? You know what? Peter doesn't have a problem here. The fact is, his faith is young. His faith is young. He's not old enough yet. Travis and Rosa have some kids. You know what I've heard? I always have to pick on Travis. I don't know why it is. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Listen to this. His kids don't drive yet. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's, they don't drive yet. It's, it's just unbelievable. They can't get behind the car. You know. So, again, that's stupid because the fact is that uh, his kids are doing, her kids are doing exactly what they should be doing, which is playing and they are pretty much driven by what they want to do. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yep, that's true. They'll get to a place, though, that they'll learn to do not just what they want to do, but what they need to do, what they might not feel like doing. That's the thing that happens when you grow from being young to being more mature. And that's what will happen to Peter's faith. He's not at the place where he's ready to go both to prison and to death. But you catch him, and if this is in the 30s, you catch him three decades, and catch him then, and watch him march, and carry the thing, and look at the grit on his face, and look at the determination and you say, how in the world do you get to a place like that? That's a good question, isn't it? How do you get to a place like that? 
the focus in his eyes. And three decades earlier, that wasn't there. There was a servant girl, and he scattered. Not now, though. What is that about? You know what that's about? That's about a God who is really good at discipline. Discipline, again, do you understand what discipline? It's not punishment. It's development. And he's good at what he does. Um, it says, Satan demanded to have you. The word translated, demanded, it can mean either to ask or to demand, depending on who you're speaking to. When you're speaking to a subordinate, it's ask. When you're speaking to someone who is, uh, I'm sorry, when you're speaking to a subordinate, it's demand. So you're speaking to a subordinate or to somebody who owes you money, has a legal obligation, Randy owes me money, I'm going to, Randy, pay me. It's not an ask, it's a demand. But when you're talking to somebody who is a superior, you don't demand, you ask. This word is translated either demand or ask in different translations of the Bible. In the New American Standard, it's demand. In the NIV, it's ask. In the English Standard Version, it's demand. Here's my question. What should it be? Should it be demand or should it be ask? What's that? That's exactly correct. Why do they say demand? Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. That makes no sense to me, as if Satan comes into God's presence and he has some kind of leverage over him. Okay, you've got me backed against a wall. That's not The way this happens is more the way it happens. You remember when the story of Job, right? Satan doesn't creep into the presence of God. He doesn't dress up like an angel, you know, like you see the, the red wings that are kind of sticking out and, his, and they're kind of, and he's kind of covering over his wing and, he, and he, he doesn't use this voice. He uses this voice, you know. That's not what it is. He is who he is, but he is within the company that sees God. He does not appear in early Judaism, Satan is not God's enemy. He is a worker who has a very difficult job. He is more like the way they would have had in those days. So if you were the king of Assyria or the king of Babylon, or even the king of Israel, you would designate some individuals who would function somewhat like the KGB functions or the CIA or the FBI. Try to sniff out insurrection in the ranks. So, boy, I tell you what, yeah, that's that president, boy, President Trump, he's not very good, is he? And so if I was a person who was functioning within the American government like this type of person. I would try to find insurrection. Maybe I'd take Terry and we'd have some coffee and I'd say, boy, you know what, my uh, my insurance doesn't look real. How about yours? What do you think of Trump? What is he doing with this thing? What is he doing? Oh, I don't like him. Oh, is that right? And then what would happen? I'd take that down and now she'd be in trouble. So the job of this type of person was to sniff out insurrection in the rank, to find out what is the level of faithfulness of these individuals to God. That seems to be the way Israel understood the functioning of Satan. He was somebody who had that sense. His job was to determine the depth 
of somebody's authenticity. That's why he says, okay, yeah, okay, sure, fine. Job is going to bless you, but it's always because he comes up cherries. Give me a shot at him, and I will expose the shallowness of his faith. We'll see what happens. Just give me the ability to beat him up a little bit. And you know what you're going to find? If I beat, if I beat, now Terry might talk about being a Trump supporter, but if I, I'm not sure if that's true. If I, but let me, let you know she doesn't. So if I, let me, let me take a couple whacks at him. Let's see how deep her devotion to him is. That's the way Satan functions in early Judaism. What ends up happening as they go into the captivity in Babylon. They come out of, out of the captivity in Babylon, and all of a sudden, more than was before, Satan has now become God's arch enemy. And it really even impacts the way some of the writings of the Bible are recorded. There is an incident where it talks about David numbering the army. And prior to going into the captivity, Babylonian religion was very dualistic. So there's, there's a very powerful light and there's very powerful dark and these, these almost like two different gods. And when Israel went into Babylon, they learned Babylonian thinking. And, and, and so there is this story then, David numbers the fighting men. Prior to going into Babylon, what it says, and if you look at it in Samuel, it says, God is the one that kind of enticed David to number the fighting men. God is large and in charge. No one can kind of stand in his way and, and nobody can oppose him. When they come out of the Babylonian captivity, that's after they come out is when First Chronicles, which is they cover First Chronicles and First Samuel, they cover the same events. But for Samuel was written before the captivity, Chronicles was written afterwards. That same event, and what it says, Satan enticed David to number the fighting men. All of a sudden now, in a way that he wasn't before, Satan is God's enemy. So here's my question. How does Jesus see Satan? Does he see Satan as God's enemy, the one who can foil God's purposes, or does he see him as God's employee? Somebody with a very difficult task. What is it? This word, it should be asked. It, just like in Job, Satan asked permission to sift you like wheat. Again, what's going to happen? Satan is going to create problems. But God is going to use his involvement to enable Peter's faith to become deeper than it was. Again, God puts, gives Satan some things, but God is ultimately in control. And Satan is not allowed to do anything to us that God doesn't sanction. I don't see Satan as somebody who, again, is, um, so what are you saying, Mike? That when Satan asks permission to sift Peter like wheat, this is not a war. I've talked about this before. If we're at battle, and I'm at, I'm at war with King Lyle. And I talked to Lyle. You know, Lyle, if you're not too busy, um, I have a, I have something I'd like to ask. I'd like to, <clears throat> I'd like to, um, <clears throat> shoot a bullet if I could. I, I, I won't try to hit anybody. As you know, as you, but I'd like to either launch a bomb or shoot a bullet. And could I do that? 
this isn't much of a war. If I have to ask permission to launch a salvo, Satan has to ask permission to do anything. And he received it. Because that's what Peter needs, and again, to become who it is that God would want him to be. God will accomplish his purpose using Satan. And again, he says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When, when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. We find the same dynamic elsewhere. Um, Paul says, because of the surpassingly great revelations, God caused a, well, let me tell you exactly what it reads. To keep me from being conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me. There was a messenger of Satan sent, but the one who dispatched the messenger of Satan was God. God. In order to deal with a pride issue that could develop when Paul would receive all these things, that's what he needed. So there is the activity of Satan, but the activity of Satan falls under the jurisdiction of what God allows. That seems to be the picture here. Um, what ends up happening after this, Jesus tells Peter, you're going to fall, what ends up happening in John 18. Simon Peter was standing warming himself, so they said to him, you're also, you are also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him, Peter? Again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Um, again, I told you, my, I've said this before, my mother, I remember my, my mother making pies. And so Peter is going to be sifted. And there's different pictures for sifting. When I think of sifting, I think of, I know they have that, those round things with the concave, and you put the flour in the top, and then you, you, you pull this thing, and then the, the screen thing goes like this, and it pushes the, the flour down through, and then the flour underneath is the one you're going to use for the pie. And I remember seeing my mother do that, and, and the crumbles at the top, and that's the image sifting. In Judaism, though, the image is of a head of grain, and you put it in a sieve so that it takes the grain apart. It pulverizes it. it. It kind of breaks it into pieces so that it can be used then. It's not a whole kernel, but it's kind of broken up. That is the image that, um, that Pete, Jesus makes for what will happen when Satan has his way with Peter um, He's going to create a place where Peter's real stuff is going to surface. And, and what's going to happen, uh, he's going to get to a place where he's going to feel the ability to follow through. When he says, I will go with you both to prison and to death, he feels it. The problem is he doesn't know that that feeling is not deep enough to allow him to really go to prison and to death. So what's going to happen, he's going to make a profession that he's not able to follow through on. And this is where the heat turns up. This is where the heat turns up. Because at this point, Satan does his work. Satan means accuser. That's what Satan means. To Satan somebody is to accuse him. Devil is another name. To devil is to divide and create distance. What Satan does is he accuses in order to create distance. You call yourself a Christian. 
how could a Christian do the things that you do? You're not a Christian at all. And there's a sense of accusation and division. That's what Satan will do. Peter falls. His faith is not deep enough. That's the fact. That's not the temptation. That's the fact. And then afterwards, here's where the problem comes. The accusation. You, so he was going to depend on you. You're the rock. Rock, not a rock at all. You better give it up. You better give it up. You're in no position to lead anyone anywhere. And in the lonely time following his denial, that's what Peter dealt with. That's when the work of Satan begins. Accusation and division. Now, what's going to happen? It would be very difficult to fight because the facts are there. Well, you understand that, don't you? You said, I will never do, and you did. I will always do, and you didn't. How do you deal with that when you professed something and really felt that it was there, but it wasn't there? The ability to follow through wasn't what you thought it had been. I imagine some of you are plagued by some decisions, some commitments you make. You said, I swear I'll, and you've done it. Peter understands that um, God uses Satan's influence to deepen Peter's faith. And again, Jesus knows how to do that. There is a verse in the Bible. It's four words. I just, if I could have, if I could be a fly on a wall, here's where I'd want to be. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, uh, that he was buried. It's in your worshipful that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that He appeared to Peter. I'd love to have heard that conversation. This is just, Peter has just denied him. And Jesus comes through the wall, comes through the door. And he appears to Peter before he appears to the twelve. He hasn't shown up on the first for the first time. He hasn't shown up for the second time. Before he sees the twelve, before he sees Thomas, the following, he's going to stop by and have a conversation with Peter. Mano a mano. She's one to one. Um, we don't have a record of the conversation. Um, I'll tell you what. Has hope and joy ever felt more welcome on a thirstier soul? Can you imagine that? And Peter comes out of what? What did Peter learn? All we know is that after that, When Jesus shows up, that would see what Peter does. He's out of the boat. He's not running away from him. He's not falling. That's the guy I need to get to. You know what Jesus ends up doing? When we come to a place where our walk and our talk don't line up, come here, sit down. Sit down. He fosters connection. That connection the ability to express, to spend time with, to remain in. He'll tell you things. He will. He's not looking at what you did wrong. He really is not. He is not. He's not pointing out you said you were. It's not what he's doing. He says, don't look past. Look here. Look here. And he has the ability to make you who he wants you to be. 
And you know what? What's your part? You remain with him. Remain with him. You know what he'll do? He'll remove. You remain. He removes. You reproduce. What's my job? Remain with him. Be honest with him. Be authentic with him. Tell him about the things inside. Don't blow smoke. Tell him about the struggles. Be honest. Be authentic. The two things that will kill spirituality are hypocrisy and judgment. Those are the things that kill spirituality. Hypocrisy is trying to be something that you're not. That's what hypocrisy is. Shiny, and and that Jesus could had no problems with a demoniac. He couldn't crack a Pharisee. Too much hypocrisy. Don't be a hypocrite. Be honest. Be authentic. Tell him what's up with you. Don't focus on where other people are. Focus on where you are. Hypocrisy and judgment. That's the other side, pointing fingers. We like to turn attention away from ourselves because it makes us feel better. But Jesus is not going to meet with you and look at who you're married to or who your kids are. Now, he'll look at that, but where he's looking, he's looking at you because it's it's about your connection with him. And that's the thing that allows faith to be deeper. You won't see any of the better. The more you know Jesus, you will not see judgment in his eyes. You won't see judgment in his eyes. It's not there. And as you see that, that becomes very powerful. It's what happened to Paul. What we know about Paul, Paul didn't become the apostle. He didn't break out. What we know is that following him being knocked off his perch, knocked off the mule, he spent three years, we don't know where, three years he was somewhere, Another, then he went to Jerusalem, then he went 14 years. He's 17 years, and we don't know what happened to him. He's just wandering around, but then after 17 years, he comes to a place where his mission begins. We tend to think it's, it's things, faith isn't built that quickly. Not for Moses, not for Peter, not for anyone. It takes time. We remain. He removes, we reproduce. There was a time then when Paul, I think, understood that coveting was a problem. And he was getting beat up wherever he went. And I think what ended up happening to Paul is that he ended up developing a sense of, you know what? I don't want to go to Thessalonica. And coveting is a sin. He took that seriously. Again, that's coveting. I don't want to go to Thessalonica. I just came from one place and they dragged me out on a cot. And I think he's approaching this, and it starts to hit him. I don't want to do this. And I think he was plagued by it. He saw that as the sin, the besetting sin that Paul dealt with was coveting. That's what it says in Romans 7. Here's what happened. I think he came to a place where he was feeling the weight of that, and he couldn't make himself change his wants. Couldn't do it. Then he ended up looking up to God. You know what God said to him? I know, and I'm not condemning you. Wait a minute. I just told you I'm not condemning you. But I'm not condemning you. It's not that he said nothing. It's not that Paul says, you know what, God, I really have a problem, and God didn't say anything. What Jesus told him, listen to me. I am not condemning you. You know, I think that did for Paul. 
I think his heart went And not that he was loved when he did it well. He was loved when he wasn't. I think what God tells to us in order to deepen our faith, I am not condemning you. That kind of devotion to someone like that is what fuels the kind of service that he asks of us. Did Peter learn? Real quickly, look what it says in 1 Peter 5. Again, this is, Peter wrote this probably a year or two before he dies. So I want you to think about what Jesus told Peter and about Peter denying and about Simon, son of John, do you love me? I'm going to bring you to a place where you don't want to go. Now, 25, 30 years have passed, and I want you to think about Peter's past and listen to these words. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You hear Peter saying that? Don't depend on what you can make yourself do. God opposes that, but he gives grace to the humble person who knows that he cannot use what he has to get what he wants. He goes on, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Uh, it says your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, to resist him. How do you resist when you are accused and divided. Here's what Paul, Peter ended up learning two things. This is what I think Jesus ended up drilling into his head. Number one, you aren't alone. You aren't alone. See what a lion does? A lion isolates in order to attack. The first attack then in bringing you down spiritually is to isolate isolate you so that you feel no one else is dealing with this. This is what Peter learned, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What, what I think that's what Peter ended up learning. He, he got bombarded with these thoughts and what he was became rooted in is, you know what? I'm not alone. And the second thing, he's not finished. He's not finished. It says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I think what Satan tried to get Peter to buy, and Peter had to fight, was, it doesn't matter, Peter, you'll never be who you, he needs you to be. You know what Peter ended up learning? Yes, I will. Yes, I will. And that's what he tells you. He's, he looks across the years. If you feel under it because your walk has not matched your talk, I think Peter's what Peter would say to us are two things. You're not alone. I know exactly what it feels like for your walk not to match your talk. I've been there in spades. I could sit down with you and he'd look you eye to eye. And what he would say, not only... You're not alone, but I think he would say this. I want you to listen to me. I think Peter would tell us, he's not finished with you yet. 
He's not finished with you yet. The book is not written on you yet. He's not finished. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself strengthen and establish, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. You're not alone. And he's not done. And he's really good at what he does. Ask the worship team to come up. Father, thank you for your purposes and your promises. Your purposes are good. And you also have the ability to bring us to the place where we can do the things you would have us to do. Uh, The fact is, in places where our walk doesn't match our talk, you would have us understand that we are not alone and that you are not finished with us. That's deep faith believes that. And we continue to remain. As we do, you continue to remove and end up reproducing. I'd ask you to give us the ability to be in it for the long haul, knowing that you're good at working, at finishing the work that you start. In Jesus' name, amen.